Good morning. And happy Reformation Sunday. You know, somebody said that Satan raised up Santa Claus to obscure Christmas. He raised up the Easter Bunny. I never made the association between rabbits and eggs. I'm a country kid. I don't know how they do that. But he raised up the Easter Bunny to obscure Easter, the resurrection. And he raised up Halloween to obscure Reformation Sunday. Think about that. And praise the Lord for using a man like Martin Luther to drag the church back to the very words of God. The just shall live by, not by their performance, but by faith. By faith. Wonderful thing. I have an assignment. Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, reads as follows. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and proclamation of his word. I was uh, very disciplined to not go over and poke my fingers in Miles' face and try to pick him up out of the carriage and play with him. Um, but welcome to the first day of the first baby of First Reformed. Miles good, 8.4 miles. Um, I'll never forget his weight because it sounds like some kind of like a strange foot race. And I guess Michael's here too or whatever. So. Uh, I hope that you all ate your Wheaties and stretched your hands this morning. You know, no one's suffering under the dredges of carpal tunnel because we'll be uh, fairly busy to do the work that we have to do. Um, what we'll see, I pray, in, in the book of Malachi is, is a purpose and a standard in God for his elect that flows forward even to us today. Um, and I pray that uh, through this that we'll be called to holy living in Christ through the prophet Malachi's words for Israel, and we'll see a call to mission, not vacation. So if you would join me in prayer before we start. God, we do thank you for your word, which is grace to us. And in a world that spins so out of control, we thank you for a weekly pinning to truth and a refocusing and a recentering on you and your word as we go out into the world. And I pray that you remind us, God, our call is to mission, not vacation. That this is the active season of our life, not the next. The next is rest and glory and worship. So God, I pray that you make us be a people of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 read, Have we not all one Father? 
Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So the text actually opens up with three questions, if you will, uh, similar to the way that Jesus would ask questions. Um, He doesn't care what your answer is. He's making a point and springboarding from whatever it is you say next. Just like uh, Pastor John Nicholas, if you attend adult Sunday school, he asks questions. They're all traps. And he he leaves these pauses where you have to answer and fall into the trap. Like this morning, he asked how many copies of the law was, (laughs) how many copies of the law were stored away? He waited for someone to say one and said, no, it was two. It's a trap. It's bait. Never answered. And so the texts open with these three questions, which form the third disputation. Disputation sounds cool. You say that, you'll sound smart. It means dispute. Okay, so the Lord, through the prophet Malachi, comes with these disputes against Israel. And we've pointed out over the last several weeks that these disputes against Israel, these things that he's bringing to Israel, isn't the stamp of his final judgment to say, you're terrible. It's a call back. And so God is so graceful. I always crawl in my skin when people say that, you know, God was a God of of judgment in the Old Testament, but he's a God of grace in the New Testament. It's like, that sounds great. You can write books, you can sell them, Lifeway will put them on the shelf, but it's not true. Your problem is going to be Scripture itself. God has always been full of grace and mercy. Anybody who ever existed after Adam proves God's grace and mercy. That's what the rainbow means, is God's grace and mercy, His covenant, His promise to not judge us in this life for the way that we are. And so the text opens with these disputations that we have to remember. These are calling Israel back. And while this is to Israel, and we'll look at that this morning, there's there's um, uh, an eternal truth in these words. There's something in this for us. So sometimes when we read the Scriptures, we have to be very cautious because we can just repeat the words that were in the Scriptures, but they're not necessarily to us. So we have to ask, well, who is the intended audience here? So there's three questions that this text opens up with. And if we're very careful with those questions, we'll actually see more about who the intended audience is. We'll understand more about the way that this is put, and we'll make less assumptions on what the text says. Because there's a trap in here, much like Pastor John Nicholas's trap, but worse. Pastor John Nicholas's trap leads to truth. There's two copies. The trap that's left here leads to a lie, which is universalism. So if we read on top of the text, we can walk away with something called universalism, which would make you think that, well, God's just, this truth that is to Israel is just universally true. It's just universally applied to everyone. Are we not all made by God? But if we're cautious with how the text is written, we won't come across that way. So here are the three questions that this dispute opens with. Number one, have we not all one father? Number two, has not one God created us? And number three, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenants of our fathers? So as we go through this, these three questions, it's essential to know that these are not those decrees of finality. God is not saying, you guys have failed in these three ways, and so I'm done with you. He's painting these pictures so that they'll return. Last week, as we went through the, the 
the beginning portion of, of chapter 2, we saw that he, he spoke directly to the priests. And he said, people should seek instruction from your lips, but you're doing things for your own benefit. And priests still do that today. And so this is all about calling them back. And I hope, I hope that that, if you're a believer, I hope that that lands on you this morning, that God calls us back through his word. And he, he's waiting for us. Like you, you, you see the, the story of the um, prodigal, prodigal son coming back to the father after doing so much hurt to him and the father waiting with a coat and a ring ready to celebrate throwing some barbecue meat on the smoker. And so in the same way, Israel is being called through the Scriptures to be reinvigorated for holiness and return to God. And so we can take that away from this passage as well, a, a reinvigoring for holiness. And I think that's important for us today. There's not a lot of call for holiness in the world around us. Uh, there's a call to lack holiness, and in some ways, Many church-based organizations would not even know the word holiness, would not know that the individual believer is called to a life of holiness, of set-apartness, of seeking after God, of desiring for purity and belief in the word of God. In fact, it would call for much less than that. And so maybe we need this same warning that Israel is about to get. Because if, if, if we're a believer this morning... It's because of God's grace. We see that John 6, 44 this morning as a leadership team. We're talking about the irresistible grace of God. That when he calls, we respond. John 6, 44 says it. If that makes us uncomfortable, then read John 6, 44. If you don't like it, cut it out of your Bible. That's between you and the Lord. So what we have this morning in Malachi 2.10 is a return to the mission of God from lives that are lived in perpetual vacation. A return to the mission of God from lives that have been lived in perpetual vacation. It starts out and says, have, not, have we not all one Father? And so if we, take, if we put the wrong lens on this, we sit down and say, oh yeah, we do all have one Father. That makes sense. God made all of us. But is that what the text is saying? The prophet's words are a call that Israel is one people in Abraham. A set-aside people in Abraham who are specifically in view here. And if, if they're not specifically in view, if this is not saying we're one people in our father Abraham, then we get into a lot of trouble in the end of this verse. Because it says that they were profaning the covenant of our fathers. So if we, take the, if we take this to say that we are all gods, then you would have to then accept that all people have been given this covenant to follow that was given through Abraham, and that's not the case. So that can't be what's in view. And so this starts out with this kind of concentric winnowing to tell you who the audience is and what the dispute is. The question that Malachi's hearers and we need to reflect on is whether God is Father. Because what we don't see is Malachi going to the Egyptians and being surprised that they're profaning the covenant 
of their Egyptian fathers because there isn't one. There is not a covenant that they would be profaning. So this doesn't mean we are all children of God's. That's not how childhood of God works, just like there's no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. You're not a believer because your mother or your grandmother was a believer, your father or your grandfather was a believer. You're a believer because you've seen your sin before a holy and righteous God. You've seen Jesus as your payment, your propitiation for another 50-cent word. And you have turned from trusting yourself and turned to trusting God. You are now a child of God, not by way of birth, and we'll see that. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit more. So this is not a universal truth. This is God's covenant people squarely in view. And Malachi is reestablishing God's sovereign election of Israel. We have Israel in view. So the father here is Abraham. And so we understand this question then as being rhetorical. This is how the audience to whom it was written would have understood what Malachi was saying. Have we not all one father? Father Abraham had many sons. Many of you want to stand up right now and start doing that goofy dance. Please don't. Many sons had Father Abraham. This is the father that is being spoken of when the passage starts out. Have we not all one Father? Next, has not one God created us? Again, this comes after Israel's having the one Father in view. And so this point is important. Because if Malachi was not addressing those in Abraham, all having one Father, God, then again, we would be talking about universalism. And if universalism were in view, the final question, why are we faithless to one another violating the covenant, would be very confusing. Because the covenant was to the lineage of Abraham, the sovereignly elected people of Israel. The fatherhood of God over Israel is a theme in Scripture. It jumps off the page. It's applied through God's sovereign choice. God chose Israel over a set-aside nation, not all people. And Malachi is very careful as he works his way towards this dispute to communicate that. So if we park on the idea of God as creator and God as father, the points, that's two points, God as creator, God as father, those are nuanced ideas. We said earlier that Malachi is not going to the Egyptians and saying, why have you violated the covenant? Because there wasn't one. Think about the way that um, God speaks to Moses through his servant to free his people from their slavery in Exodus chapter 4. God commands some specific words to be spoken. His mouthpiece tries to get out of it, says, I'm not actually very good at public speaking. Anybody who's ever taken a college public speaking course knows how incredibly uncomfortable that is. Here's the message that God says to deliver, verse 22. Then you should say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
Now, we're pretty much several generations deep here. So again, this concept of sonship, Israel, or God refers to the nation of Israel as his son. Certainly plenty of people have lived before this point. Um, there's a point at which Pharaoh is like, these people multiply at such a great rate. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty crazy. They're working pretty hard. And they've got a lot of spare time on their hands, apparently, or some extra energy at the end of the day. Somebody's drinking espresso, you know? Got to the point where they were making bricks with straw inside, right? They're not even making good bricks anymore, but they're still making lots of babies. So God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. So here, this is the perfect picture. We see that being a child of God, being referred to as a child of God, being referred to as the firstborn son, comes by God's electing grace. God has decided, this is my firstborn. And it's not about birth order. It's about, it's about preeminence. It's about the promises and the blessings that go with a people. This is what would have happened with the oldest son, right? Sorry, younger sons, you get nothing. Older son, you get all the stuff. And for some of you, that means you just get debt in a house you have to deal with. <laughs> so God has his firstborn people that draws on that construct of the, the firstborn having right to the family inheritance. And pulling that concept forward, Jesus uses that concept as well. God authored it. It had become a part of the culture. You see it in lots of cultures, actually. And we see that Jesus draws on that same concept. Um, in fact, the book of Hebrews declares that Jesus is the firstborn. Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all three, all things, through whom he also created the world. So in the moment where we're reading in the book of Malachi, Israel is the firstborn son. Move that forward through the years of silence. Um, the book of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 21 says, she will, have a, he, uh, she will have a son, his name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. No equivocating, no question. There are a definite people. He will save them from their sins. They respect their choice because his grace is very compelling. And so then Jesus becomes the preeminent. Jesus is the firstborn, the apple of God's eye. And so all of the blessings and the benefits, all of the fulfillment of everything that Scripture ever said all comes to rest and center on Jesus. Jesus himself then, who is the firstborn, who takes on all of the characteristics and the blessings that Hebrews said all creation came through, talks about this national fatherhood and its implications on inheritance in John chapter 8. Now, this is like one of my favorite portions of all of Scripture. And again, I'm going to put a pin in that. I want there to be a, a video at my funeral. You ever go to funerals where there's like pictures and stuff? To heck with that. I want everyone to suffer through a video. And I want it just to be clips of teaching Scripture where I say, this is my favorite passage from the Bible. And my hope is by the time my life and ministry are over, I will have said that by at least 50% of the whole Bible. But to the issue of national fatherhood and its implications on inheritance, you know, just a issue that comes up all the time. John chapter 8, verses 35 through 45 are awesome. This is one of my favorites. Don't forget, Jesus um, speaks through 
oftentimes speaks through uh, my native tongue, which is smirnalicism. So with that in view, start in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. This is where it gets spicy. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. That's where they got real sideways. It was already not going well for them, but right there. That's probably one of those moments where in a minute they're going to want to reel it back. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. But when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus really wasn't overly impressed that they were found in the physical lineage of Abraham. This was one of many times that there was this kind of tension. Jesus would tell folks later that if he needed to, he could make stones laying on the ground over there be sons of Abraham. So there was a tension with those called Israel, yet who had no reverence for God. And even here, prior to Jesus' arrival, yes, they were a covenant people. Yes, they were in the lineage of Abraham. But there was a tension when their hearts drifted far from God. Because it really wasn't about their genetic lineage. It was about their heart. And their genetic lineage was supposed to give an environment to protect the message of the word, which was supposed to be passed on to the children. Right? We've studied in the book of Psalms, where we see the children would learn their Hebrew alphabet. Even still, I think I, I told you, our minivan which minivans are cool. If you look on the hard drive of our minivan, a Jewish family had it before us, there's Hebrew songs on there. And they're all designed to teach kids all the way through the Bible. At least half of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. Remember, what we're, what we're going after here is the difference between just having a genetic lineage and having a proximity to God and really knowing God and how important that is, and how much God works to protect that, and how he, he, he gives us stakes 
I don't mean food. I guess he does that too. Steak as a result of the fall, sorry. Um, but steaks, when I, when I was army, you see the army is actually built up out of insane people. And so they have these things called uh, a, a sector fire. And, and they put physical stakes in the ground. And the purpose of that is so that when everybody is all lined up guarding a perimeter, if you bring your rifle too far to the right, it hits a stick. Okay, it's a boom. Why? Because there's someone else right there and you don't want to shoot that person, right? Because you care about them, sure, but also because now there's a void in the perimeter. And so in the same way, so much of Scripture gives us that sector fire. And so this particular passage starts to talk about yoking with unbelievers. Now here's what a yoke is. Imagine you're an ox. You don't even know what that is, but that's okay. This physical piece of wood strapped across your neck and then a, a, a thing that comes across the bottom to hold your face in it. And you're, you're yoked, you're connected to this other animal like this. And, and if you've got some idiot over here kicking and pulling at that thing, it's going to make it grossly uncomfortable for you. You will be unequally yoked. And so God gives us this sector stakes, if you will. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out into the midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you. Sonship was never really assumed by lineage. It was always by grace through faith. When God reaches someone, when God changes someone, when they truly see God, there's fruits out of that. right? So it's not that we have to change our behaviors. It's that we need God to come into us and change the way that we see and understand the world. And then it will change our desires. Maybe not perfectly, um, I can't tell you the number of times I've met someone who's become a, a new believer, a recent believer, and have all kinds of bad habits. I can't tell you how many of us have been believers for 10, 15, 20, 50 years and have bad habits. I think there was conversation about that this morning, right? Taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, take a framing hammer. Some of you know where I'm going. And miss and hit your thumb. That thing explodes. I don't know what it is about framing hammers, man. Those things will get you. It'll immediately show you what bad habits you have left. Right? For some of you, it's getting cut off in traffic. For some of you, like if you don't eat every 45 minutes, you are a bear to the world around you. You've got some blood sugar issues. For some of you, you're just a bear to the people around you at every given moment of every single day. In respect of food or caffeine, it's the nature of being curmudgeon. <clears throat> Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He 
Who formed you, O Israel? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. For I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. For everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. In the first verse of Isaiah 43, we see that Israel called by name. At the very end where we just finished up in verse 7, everyone who is called by his name has been created for his glory. Unified in a relationship with God for a specific purpose. Not called to vacation. Always called to mission. In a healthy Biblically ordered family, the children will obey their father. In 1 Timothy 3.12, that's why deacons' homes are called to be well-ordered. It's a picture of biblical faithfulness. Now, does that mean your children are perfect? I hope not, because if so, I'll take a seat. And so will John. When God's people hear his voice, we obey, we listen, we're impacted by that. When when we see God call for us to holiness, we want to be that because we respond to our Father. So since Israel is created by God with an expressed purpose, which has been our theme in Malachi, as a return back, a calling back to that purpose, Priests should be encouraging people and learning and in the word and in holiness. God sovereignly selected to give himself as father to Israel. And he demands a faithfulness to that sovereign election. Through that election, he made that nation of Israel to be sons and as such, together brothers and as such, family And as family, then having a certain duty to one another as a distinct people set aside for obedience. There's several instances in Scripture where we see just a general recognition that we um, are protective and specially care for our family. We see that evidenced in our own lives, probably. Um, You know, if you have siblings, you're allowed to almost to the point of absolute torture, your brother or your sister, but other people are not. They can't join you in that. 
Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 12 shows a very early example. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose against his brother, and Abel killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to your strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Later in Genesis chapter 37, specifically verse 27, we read, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. These passages resonate with us. We kind of understand them because we know that there's a unique tie among family. And Jesus then drawing on that uniqueness and family relationship in Matthew uh, chapter 5 probably heard us mention this before, because this is the one that everyone thinks that I get away with, right? If I'm looking at the commandments and I see the one for murder, I'm like, I'm in. Verse 22 of chapter 5, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Because we should have this special care that just naturally comes out of us for our own family. But because of sin, because sin has affected everything in the world, we at times violate that. We may generally recognize it. We may generally be kind towards our our brothers and our sisters. But sometimes they just catch us at the wrong moment. Right? And so in the same way, in Christ... Just as in Abraham they were a family, we today in the church are a family in Christ. It says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. What Jesus is saying is those people who have been indwelled, who have become believers, who have seen God, who desire for obedience, albeit imperfectly, because you think about the people he was hanging out with that he pointed to, are not perfect fulfillers of the law. Not even one of them. 
So we as the church are joined together as a family in Christ, brothers and sisters, called to a communal kind of holiness. Sometimes, just like Israel gathered in Abraham, we're called back to faithful followership of our Father and Lord. And so this third dispute of God through Malachi to his covenant people Israel points them back to faith because God is patient and full of mercy. And I'm thankful for that. And I know most of you, you should be too. I'm just kidding, but we really should be, right? God's patience and mercy with us is the most incredible gift. And I'm reminded of that fairly regularly through my own failures. I'm so thankful that God is patient and mercy. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Judah, who he loves, is described as being faithless. In Deuteronomy 7, 3, I told you, carpal tunnel, uh, people who suffer heavily under the weight of carpal tunnel are going to be triggered this morning. Deuteronomy 7, 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Maybe that sounds rough for us today, right? Maybe you're like, wow, that's, that's, really, that's like really racist. Um, except God was standing a covenant people up so that the rest of the world would come to see and know him through this special set-aside people. And the world that they were in weren't just like, sometimes weren't just kind of mean. They were boiling babies and golden statues. Um, they were doing all kinds of horrific things. And so allowing that in, bringing that into your home, bringing that into your proximity was bad not only for you, think sector fire, right? You bump that stick because there's somebody to your right and in the heat of the moment, you can forget about it. Ezra 9, 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So they had drifted from holiness. They knew, at least should have known, what they were supposed to do, what God commanded, what God has said. But they drifted from it. And the reason for drift is always the same. It's not paying attention, not being engaged, not being in prayer, not believing it. And that's a danger for us today. We're distracted by so many things. Like if I was to, if, if, I bet you we could do this really weird, sick experiment. And we could even tell you we were doing the experiment. Here's, the, here's what we do. We take you downstairs into the fellowship hall, remove every distraction from you. We set up a table in the middle of the room. We open the Bible and we give you an assignment to read one chapter from the Bible. Say Matthew 5, okay? And then we take your phone, and we unlock it. And we open the screen, we put it right next to it, and we just walk away. What do you think the chances are you're going to make it through Matthew 5 without picking up your phone just to take a look? We're so pulled in every direction. I'm not necessarily saying that's good or bad. 
Okay? I do it all the time. Like I pull down on Twitter to see if there's anything new to look at. Right? I'm with you. What I'm saying is we just have to be conscious that our attention is divided in so many different ways. Um, like I'm of this weird generation. I call myself a wideband millennial. Um, but I'm like this middle ground generation that grew up analog and then like became digital. So I remember that banks used to close on Friday. Um, and I remember pre-bank card. Now put yourself in that situation, okay? It is Saturday at noon. You have no cash in your pocket and it's time to go get something to eat. Guess what, millennial? You're going to die. <laughs> you have to sell some blood. You have to float a check somewhere. There's no way to get to your money. You can't have it. We just have to be aware of all of the draws against us because we start to drift, right? And so if we don't point ourselves specifically at truth, if we don't make ourselves make time for truth, it's not in us. The truth is not in us. Our minds aren't being transformed. You know, that text, when you read it, it says, be being transformed, meaning continue to do that. We, we think that transformation of our mind happens in the moment that we are saved and redeemed. I promise you that is not what happens. Um, I remember a, a, a story from a church that we went to in New Mexico where uh, one, someone came up to the pastor um, and said, you know, hey, I'm really concerned about so-and-so. He cusses while he prays. <laughs> I know it sounds weird. Uh, be being transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Praise God that the person's a believer. So they had drifted from holiness. And this is why I say this is to Israel, right? Um, but this is to a people who are in covenant with God, and we in Christ are in covenant with God. And so we, by that same token, are in danger of drift as well. We would do well to look out for drift. That's the carry forward for us here. That we are a family of believers, brothers and sisters called to obedient lives for God's glory. It's always the purpose. We fall not under the lordship of Abraham, but of Jesus. He is the personification and the fulfillment of all of the types and the covenants and the promises that were in everything before Matthew was all fulfilled on Jesus. He didn't come to erase the law. He came to fulfill it. He dotted every I and crossed every T, every jot, every tittle. Every ounce of the law was satisfied in him. In fact, it was all for him. He was God's active agent in creation. Everything that exists is created by him. And so then we are joined into the family of God through him. There is no other way. There is no other way through God except for by the man, Christ Jesus. So with that, we as New Testament believers should be encouraged to live holy, set-aside lives as children of God's under Jesus' own lordship. Hebrews 10.25, Neglecting not to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We need one another. We have blind spots. Um, and so we help 
in so many ways, like the, the, the many members of the body all come together um, and, and just they function differently. And so whenever someone's not here, we're missing out on some function of the body. We need one another. Um, even seeing one another grow is an encouragement to us. And sometimes you'll think you're stagnant in your growth and you're not doing well. And people will say, dude, here's all this fruit that I see in your life. And so that could be an encouragement to one another. And so sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I, you know, I don't really need to be there. OK, well, I would argue that. But also, perhaps then, since you're so elevated and far along in your journey, you need to encourage and pour into others. And so then you're robbing others by not being here because you're so advanced. We need to not be lulled to lacking in holiness. And that's what happens, especially when we begin to hide from one another, is we start to lack in holiness. We start to declare a friendship with the world, which James 4.4 talks about. We should want to dwell on the Word and the worthiness of Christ and be living as an obedient family, holding each other to account in love. Philippians 3.8 says this so wonderfully. I indeed count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The prophet Malachi said of Israel that they'd started to marry the daughters of another god. Similarly, we are called not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Because we, church, are not on vacation. We're on mission. We're not just aimlessly floating about this life. We're to live in the midst of it differently. And we're to disagree with the world. That's our purpose. We're to live differently from the inside. And I'm not talking about from the inside in here, in your prayer closet. I'm saying from the inside of the world, you're supposed to be the light of the world that shines out into the darkness. We're supposed to be differentiated. Now, some people just want to be light. Like, have you ever, like, you give a kid a flashlight in a dark room, first place it goes is what they want to see, which is your face. Okay, we're not, right? They shine it in there. You can see the reflection of your own cornea. Or like, if you've ever, like, worked with your dad or some grumpy male on a car, you know you can never, ever hold the flashlight in the correct spot. That's not how we're supposed to be as light. We're supposed to be helpful, but we're also supposed to be salt, Right? And salt makes everything good, right? We, we, we joke around about MSG. We're like, how could you eat a spice that's just supposed to make food taste better, but it's really bad for you? And we're like, I know. How could you do that, right? With salt. We love it. I salt my salt. I could eat salt rocks. If you, you know, you could see me next to a deer under someone's tree stand, and I'd look up like this, you know? I love this stuff. That's how we're supposed to be with our light, Right? People are supposed to want to come towards it, not be repelled by it. We're not supposed to be repugnant and off-putting. <clears throat> We're supposed to be drawing salt and light. People want to come to us. We're like a moth, right? They're just bumping up against us all the time like a bulb. 
We have to work at that. It's difficult to be truth and love. But that's how we're supposed to be. We're on mission, not on vacation. So let us see then the warning of a holy God to his elect nation, Israel, who's supposed to be being faithful to the covenant. And let us take that on for ourselves and say, okay, where, where can I find that in myself? If I am part of the elect children of God, what then is that covenant in Christ that I need to be faithful to and draw attention towards? Not like some selfish birthday celebration where I just think about myself and I want everybody to sing to me and think about me, right? And I want everybody to look at me. But like someone who has concern for the world around them. Let's take on that challenge. Let's pray. Great God, thank you so much that you first loved us while we were in a state that was not even arguably unlovable, but just frankly unlovable. And so God, that you found us you sought us. You changed our hearts so that we could respond to your gospel. You gave us the wonderful picture of your son Jesus and all the forerunning and type ahead of it so that we could plainly see salvation in you. God, thank you for doing all of that. I pray, God, if there was anyone in the room this morning who hasn't yet known you savingly, that this would be the day that they would respond to your gospel in salvation, that they would see themselves before your holiness and say, I'm not that. And that they would then turn to you and your son, Christ Jesus, and believe and trust and faith. And that they would then grow and be transformed in their mind and desire for holiness. got to pray that for us as a church, that holiness would be our first desire. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You would.